Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget, if you listen to our podcast, to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr. Jonathan Bargett, and I am an acute and internal general medicine registrar, and I'm a TMC member for the RCPE. And today I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Damien Fogarty. We're going to be talking about when the kidneys stop working. So welcome, Dr. Fogarty, and could you tell the listeners a bit about yourself? Thanks very much, Jonathan, and thanks to the Royal College for hosting this. I am a consultant nephrologist, kidney physician, as we probably like to call ourselves these days. I work in Belfast, in the Belfast Trust, and have trained mostly in Northern Ireland with a short amount of time in the U.S., and I work in a sort of tertiary referral center that deals with all forms of acute and chronic kidney disease, kidney failure, and obviously transplantation and all types of dialysis. So it's fantastic to have you. Essentially, what we're talking about is acute kidney injury and patients with chronic kidney disease. Why is this so important, Dr. Fogarty? Okay, so acute kidney injury is a relatively new term in that it's really 10 to 15 years old. And it was called acute renal failure many years ago. We developed a new system to cause it acute kidney injury. And the idea of using the term injury is to highlight to people that you can prevent injury in the same way you prevent accidents. And a lot of acute episodes that happen to the kidneys are potentially preventable. Why is it important? It's very common now. The five and some studies, 10% of all acute hospital admission patients have some degree of acute kidney injury, either in stages one, two, or three, which are based on relative changes of creatinine and or EGFR. And this is very common for the general physician and all physicians and surgeons in hospital and increasingly general practitioners to recognize. It's common, it's costly because those patients who have acute kidney injury have an underlying problem, usually something that's upset the kidneys, if you like. And that problem then leads to greater morbidity and mortality. Also, if the kidneys are upset maximally to the point dialysis is required, this is associated with a greatly prolonged admissions and sadly, a significant mortality. In some countries in the world, for instance, without healthcare systems, you know, many young people still die with acute kidney injury and dehydration, for instance. In westernized cultures, most of our patients with acute kidney injury are elderly, vulnerable patients with other chronic diseases. So that's why it's common and costly in terms of resources and, of course, for the patients. So clearly this is very important. And essentially, we can have a chat about the Aiken staging, because I know one of our, our listeners will know what this is, but really we're talking about the temporary or in some cases the permanent loss of function of the kidney. Is that right? That's right. So the Aiken stages are based on acute changes in serum creatinine. Stage one is traditionally a small increase in serum creatinine equal to somewhere between 150 and 200% from baseline. So that might be a creatinine going from, say, 80 to 120 uh, would be stage one. 
Stage two is a 200 to 300%, so two to threefold rise. So that'll be the same patient with a cranial innovate going to say 160, 200. And that's at stage two and above stage three, which is a threefold rise that we're most interested in because with each of those stages, there's clearly a bigger hit in terms of physiological upset to the kidney perfusion and uh, therefore greater risks. And I suppose to put things in the context, you know, the five to 10% of admissions that I mentioned is coming in with Aiken, most of those would be stage one. So they're relatively minor changes in creatinine and really need our involvement as nephrologists. We tend to get more involved with stage two and stage three patients, particularly stage three, where there's a threefold rise in creatinine. So that's the staging system. And it's a crude system. It's, you know, I wouldn't want people to get hung up on it too much. I have to go and look it up again every so often. I think what's important is to recognize that every serum creatinine rise indicates some change in perfusion of the kidneys. And I suppose I should say at the start, Jonathan, that, you know, you can say if you take 100 patients with acute kidney injury, about 90% of those patients have a, what's called a pre-renal insult. In other words, there's been a drop in perfusion pressure due to bleeding maybe, or due to volume losses, diarrhea, GI losses, or even due to perfusion changes connected with drug therapies or reduced oral intake of food and fluid, for instance. These are the big causes. The other 10% of acute kidney injury is either in the kidney, intrinsic renal disease, or obstructive renal disease. And historically, we used to say it was a sort of 80% pre-renal, 10% intrinsic renal, 10% post-renal. I've arbitrarily said it's more like 95-5 now because there are so many more older, vulnerable patients at risk of volume depletion, dehydration, hypotension. So that's really clear just to give the listeners an idea about what kind of symptoms patients might present with and, and who might be at risk of acute kidney injury. And you've already alluded to that the older patient might be at risk. What kind of age are we thinking that might be at risk of AKI? And what are the kind of comorbidities or health conditions that patients might have that would put them at higher risk of an acute kidney injury? Great question. So let's think about that. The two go together, if you like. Aging patients are at risk because they generally have accumulated vascular hardening or thickening. I mean, our older patients in their 80s and 90s, let's say, even if they don't have vascular risk factors, have got a more vulnerable cardiovascular system. If you think about it, diastolic pressure goes down as one ages. This is a clear sign of arterial stiffening. And it's exactly this group of older patients with stiffer vessels where they have vulnerable renal circulations. And that then leads nicely into the idea that the other groups of patients are at risk of uh, arterial risk, which are the biggest precipitant or risk factor for AKI. They are patients with diabetes, hypertension, vascular disease, ischemic heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, particularly cerebrovascular disease, and any of the conditions that lead to those. So even younger patients who are heavy smokers that have a previous vascular event, they may only be in their early 50s. You know, those patients, if they get an acute kidney injury, it's telling you something about their vasculature as well as their kidneys, if you like. But certainly everybody over the age, 80 is vulnerable and people between the ages of 60 and 80 who've got another risk factor, diabetes, hypertension, vascular events would be the big risk groups. That's really insightful just to give an overview of what really we should be thinking about whenever we're taking the history from our patients that present in acute medicine or on the ward. I guess one of the things I always took from my learning on acute kidney injury is that acute kidney injury isn't the diagnosis, it's just a smokescreen or a warning that there's something else going on that's more serious. What are your, your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, absolutely. One of my colleagues always shows a smoke alarm in his house and he says that the acute kidney injury is really the smoke alarm of the body telling you there's a problem elsewhere. The problem isn't in the smoke alarm usually, apart from that 5% of an intrinsic renal problem. It's really the kidneys telling us as an early marker that there's a problem elsewhere. And let's think commonest precipitant now that we see is sepsis, really acute sepsis as a major precipitant in patients. Sometimes, of course, there are other factors, not just sepsis on its own in the elderly vulnerable patient, but it's somebody maybe who's continued to take certain drugs that would lower their blood volume, such as diuretics, lower their blood pressure, such as ACE inhibitors, ARB agents, or make them vulnerable to side effects of drugs accumulating. So, you know, let's, if you take an elderly patient, who's on a diuretic and an ACE inhibitor, and they've had a heart attack 10 years ago, they're still on these drugs, and they get a urosepsis in an elderly gentleman or a chest infection in an elderly lady. Let's take these examples. If they're not aware to stop or change those, reduce those drugs or what's going on, they can clearly get into a spiral of not feeling great as the sepsis takes hold. They stop eating and drinking. But their kidneys keep passing water because that's what kidneys tend to do, particularly in older patients. So you've now got double and triple whammies happening. Patients are vasodilated. They've got sepsis. They've reduced oral intake. They've continued to take the drugs that affect their blood volume and blood pressure. And then they get into this sort of spiral. Let's say they're taking codeine, even simple paracodol tablets, which, you know, cause nausea, for instance. You know, they keep taking their tablets and their painkillers. And next thing, they're a bit drowsier. They're just not as well as they were. They get maybe a delirium as well. So we see the cerebral effects in this age group as well. So if you think of acute kidney injury and acute delirium as, as if you like, partners in crime with the sepsis and pre-renal events, it's a nice way to think of it. And do think of patients at risk because of their vasculature. Kidneys are, after all, when you look at some at casts where they've injected models of human kidneys, they're very vascular. They're really glorified capillaries with a filter unit at the end of the capillary, if that's not oversimplifying it. I think it's really useful just to remind everyone that the function obviously is an organ that filters the blood. And one of the things that really strikes me is when you see a patient and you're you know, you're diagnosing the, the AKI on their creatinine, certainly for one measure. One patient may have a creatinine that is the same in another who doesn't have an acute kidney injury. I guess I just would like to ask you about what is creatinine, first and foremost, and why is that changing creatinine the thing that, that we look for in our patient with the AKI? Again, a great question. And creatinine is one of the many, many different analytes that we all send off, but maybe don't think so much about what's going on in the background. Creatinine is derived from creatine. Creatine is a compound in muscles. So creatinine is produced in a steady state way, uh, depending on your muscle bulk. So if you take a large man who might be 100 kilos or an old money, since we're talking imperial versus metric these days, you know, 14 to 15 stone, they'll have a very different muscle bulk from a frailer older lady who might be only 55, 60 kilograms. The female will have a much lower creatinine. And as a broad rule of thumb, I often say to our trainees, think of your weight in kilograms and your creatinine is never too far from that. So Many females will have a creatinine of 40 to 60 in that weight range. Many men have creatinines of 80 to 100. And of course, the other added thing that influences creatinine is race. So African-American, black, 
populations have much higher muscle bulk, much higher serum creatinines. So they may have a normal creatinine of 120 in the well-built black male, whereas that's very different. And EGFR takes account of that, but it is still worth understanding where creatinine comes from and how somebody has the same change in creatinine, but they have different AKI stages. That's great. And I guess one of the things I'd like to ask you is about what your trust does in Belfast about recognising AKI and then whether there's a bundle of care that you would instigate. Certainly in my trust, we have an AKI bundle. Can you talk a bit about that, Dr Fogarty? So there is a couple of AKI bundle approaches. Probably one of the easiest to think of is that derived by a colleague of mine called the ABCDE, which is used for acute kidney injury. and A stands for first assess, assess patient's volume status and blood pressure status. That's most important. And in doing that, there are a few really simple things. Firstly is don't forget to talk to the patient and the relatives and find out about their oral intake as well. This is often forgotten about. I mean, very often there'll be a preceding period where there's poor oral intake. So that's important. Find that out. Look at blood pressure. Look at skin turgor. And look, if you can do a a lying and sitting blood pressure, many patients are too unwell to actually stand them up. But, you know, in the younger patient who's mobile, you can certainly do a lying and standing blood pressure. And don't forget to look at the change in in heart rate. So that's a very common thing as well to see a tachycardia on standing with respect to the blood volume. Assessing the blood pressure, then the next, the B is a boost to boost the blood pressure. And one of the things that we look at is, of course, replacing blood products, if there's bleeding, fluid, if there's obviously GI losses, and in terms of boosting blood pressure, stopping the drugs that may be impacting blood pressure. So we tend to stop all the antihypertensives in that patient. The C is for calculate their fluids for the next 24 hours. It's a bit of a slower burn. D is to dip the urine or consider the urine. By dipping the urine, there's two elements to dipping the urine. Obviously, if they're passing urine, that's good. And it tells you that actually there's urine there to be assessed. If there's no urine to assess, go straight to E for exclude obstruction. If there is urine, you want to dip the urine and see if there's blood or protein. If there's a lot of blood and protein, then you might be dealing with one of the acute intrinsic renal causes of AKI, such as glomerulonephritis, or more rarely the acute tubular interstitial nephritis, which is usually a drug effect as well. So that's the A, B, C, D, E steps. And different people have put different acronyms, but it's a nice way to kind of think of it quickly. But again, if you keep in mind, the kidneys are the filtration units, they need a blood supply. If there's no blood pressure, then of course, those kidneys are not going to work. They might work on a younger 30-year-old patient when the blood pressure is low, but if an 80-year-old patient has suddenly a blood pressure of 80 systolic, And their ambient blood pressure before their acute illness might have been 150, 160. So remember the relative differences in blood pressures as well. Really helpful advice. And I guess before we talk about some cases, if that's possible, I'd like to just ask you about what the main complications we see in AKI and and how we can avoid these, just the general measures that we could employ. Sure. So the general thing, the first thing is electrolyte disorders. So everybody will know at this stage in their training that the electrolyte disorders of high potassium hyperkalemia and acidosis, a low bicarbonate, are the two big 
electrolyte problems we consider. Yes, urea and creatinine will rise and some people can get sick and drowsy if the urea goes into the mid-higher 20s. But in general, for the acute medical take-in setting, you know, you're dealing with first acute potassium rises and falls in bicarbonate or what's called metabolic acidosis. So they're the things to look out for. So look at the UNE. Don't just look at the potassium sodium. Don't forget about the bicarbonate. Bicarbonate in most UNEs is called either HCO3 minus bicarbonate or CO2. Some laboratories call it CO2. So just be aware of that. It's not CO2 that is measured in kilopascals reflecting a respiratory concentration of CO2. This is actual bicarbonate dissolved in the bloodstream. It's measured in millimoles per liter. Normal range is 22 to 28 millimoles per liter. Potassium range is 4 to 5.5 millimoles per liter. Mild hyperkalemia is up to 6. 6 to 7 is moderate hyperkalemia. Above 7 is severe hyperkalemia. And that certainly needs more help. If you get anything above 7, you really need to be getting senior help and input because you could be dealing with someone who's critically ill who's at risk of electrolyte-immediated cardiac bradycardia, and even arrest with asystole. So the hyperkalemia is the one that we're all aware of. So there are the electrolyte complications, Jonathan. The, the other complications are fluid retention, salt and water retention, so patients can slip into pulmonary edema. So again, yes, rehydrate the patient who's dehydrated, but rehydrate in conjunction with looking at the fluid output and the fluid balance. And this means coming back to the patient, not a day later, but maybe coming back to them six, eight hours later as a minimum and looking at what they've passed and then adjusting the fluid balance for that. You know, if they still remain oligoanuric and you're giving a liter every three to six hours, let's say very quickly, you know, that elderly frail patient who may have cardiac disease could be three liters plus in 24 hours. And that's going to be far too much if they remain oligoanuric. So electrolytes and fluid balance are the real issues to look out for. As a third area to look out for is drug accumulation. So if the patient is drowsy, look at their centrally acting drugs, consider stopping them. If they're very drowsy, if they're twitching, if they've got pinpoint pupils, don't forget opiate accumulation. That's a really good overview of the things to be aware of. And I guess I'd like to talk about some cases now, all of the things that you've spoken about. So let's just say that we're coming in to the acute medical unit and it's the, the acute medical take. You've been asked to see three patients, but the nursing staff just say that they all need seeing, but they're all relatively well, but maybe there's one to see first. So the first gentleman is in his 40s and he's been in A&E for about 12 hours, actually. And he's come in with vomiting and has been vomiting for the last 48 hours. He drinks alcohol and has a history of alcohol dependency syndrome and may be withdrawing. It turns out he's got a background of type 2 diabetes and has that diagnosis for at least 10 years. And he's actually awaiting placement of a fistula because the renal team know him and feel that he may be approaching dialysis in the near future. And essentially, he's got a record of an HbA1c of around 100 millimoles per, per mole on his records. And his baseline creatinine sits at around 500. But on this occasion, his creatinine is 1,000. And his potassium of note is actually low. So it's 2.4 and an undetectable chloride. The nursing staff are worried because his creatinine is so high and they want you to see him. So given that, what's your kind of impression and thoughts to how you might initially approach this chap? Okay, so 
Yes, I like this sort of case because this is a classic one where the nurse phones you up and you may be actually physically away somewhere else and you've heard this dramatic story and you're thinking, right, do I drop what I'm doing with a patient who's, I don't know, you're doing a procedure in a patient who's critically ill elsewhere and you've got to go down and see this patient or can I give advice here? So my first question is always, well, how is the patient? Is he awake sitting up talking to you? And, you know, getting that clear history is important. If they're unconscious or unwell, like to know the pulse and blood pressure and saturation, so the basic OBS be one of the first things. And then I'd like to know if they've passed urine at all since they've been there. So his blood pressure sits at around 95 or 50, and it hasn't really budged overnight. He's had one litre of crystalloid, so plasmalite fluid, Mm -hmm. and he has passed urine, but only about 50 mils. The A&E team have asked whether he'd want a catheter, but he's declining it. But he's alert and... He has been vomiting in the department, but when you see him, his oxygen saturation is 98% on air, his respirator is about 20, he's afebrile, he hasn't had any fevers in the department, his heart rate is sitting about 120 in a sinus rhythm, and his QTC, when you look at it, is prolonged on the ECG at around 470 milliseconds, and hemoglobin is 180 on his bloods, and his urea is up in the 30s, but it usually sits at around 20, and all the rest of that writes. So that of note, the magnesium is not 0.3. So where does that take you? I think the first thing that jumped out at me there, it's good that his SATs are good. His blood pressure is still on the low side. But the thing that jumps out at me straight away is that hemoglobin. I think you said 180. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is clearly somebody, if he's got CKD approaching dialysis, he's normally sitting with a GFR between 10 and 15 or maybe thereabouts, which would be currently in a 500, you can pretty much say for a man is a GFR of about 10. For women, about 300, okay, is, is it two figures to keep in your head. So that his GFR is normally about 10. At that stage, he should have a slightly low hemoglobin. And even if he was on erythropoietin replacement with an ESA, as they are now called, he wouldn't have a hemoglobin at its 180. So this chap is significantly behind in his fluids. I would say he's been vomiting quite a bit. And I would say his heart rate of 120 reflects that and alcohol withdrawal more than anything. And he may actually be, although he's declining a urinary catheter, this guy needs catheterized straight away. You know, that's the issue. He may not have control or the normal signaling that his bladder is full. So that's the first thing to do. You'd need to get him catheterized. And I think it'll be interesting to see with further fluid replacement. He sounds particularly dry, particularly if he's been vomiting and his urea is in the 30s. At the minute, there's no indication for dialysis in terms of he's not hypoxic with fluid overload. He's not hyperkalemic. I haven't heard of bicarbonate, but he doesn't sound if he's, if he was very acidemic with a significant uremic related metabolic acidosis, I would expect his rests to be even higher than 20, but I'd be interested in the bicarbonate anoia at some point. And you might then, based on the bicarbonate, it might change the fluids over to some bicarbonate depending on what that is. He's clearly got losses of fluid as well with his and his nutrition is poor with a magnesium of 0.3 but he is high risk of course with his prolonged QTC in terms of his cardiac function so he will need a bit of replacement with potassium and some magnesium so his bicarb comes back and it's sitting at 37 actually and hmm. the pH is 7.5 yeah, it's like what we call an alkalosis is bicarb, not 22 to 28, normal, not low, but he's got a contraction alkalosis, classic contraction. We use the phrase contraction to highlight that the same amount of 
circulating bicarbonate is just less volume that it's in. And that's why it's up at 37. He's got an alkalosis from that. So that's useful information. So I think just in terms of general management, what's the key thing for this gentleman? Key thing is fluid replacement and urinary drainage. And he needs treatment for his withdrawal. Uh, it sounds like the alcohol withdrawal is a problem. He's alert. His airway isn't at risk. So that's the key thing. And he should get his creatinine back down reasonably quickly. Just another little nugget of useful information, I think, is if you double your creatinine, you've halved your GFR. And that's so creatinine going from 500 to 1,000 sounds like a big deal. But if you look at the slope, between if you plot creatinine versus GFR, you'll see that exponential range. It doesn't take much of a change in renal perfusion to go from 500 to 1,000. It's actually the same as would push somebody's, the elderly lady I mentioned earlier, her serum creatinine is normally 50. For her, creatinine to go from 50 to 100 is actually the same change in kidney perfusion and function as the creatinine of 500 to 1,000, roughly speaking, because you, you double your creatinine, you half your GFR. Great, great. So... We've talked about fluid balance for this chap, replacement of electrolytes. And from what you've said, it sounds like this guy should be okay. And he will probably respond quite quickly to just adequate fluid resuscitation. But obviously there is a risk that he may have a decline in function, which might expedite his need for dialysis at some point in the future, but not immediately because he's biochemically safe. Yes, he is biochemically safe, but I think it is good practice to let the renal unit who knows of him, about him, in terms of, yes, he's got an alcohol withdrawal problem that's precipitated this particular change. And this is an acute on chronic. We sometimes call this a small o CKD. It's acute on chronic, but it's also an akin. But it's obviously much easier to get an acute episode impacting your overall biochemistry if you've already got pre-existing CKD. So many of the cases with AKI occur in patients with existing CKD. This is a good case to highlight it. Great. So let's move on to the next patient then. So again, this is the patient that's been in the department for quite some time, actually. He's in his 70s and he's been in the AE having presented from the community because of a GP finding of a creatinine of 700 and a potassium of 6. And so he presented to his GP that day, essentially routine review of blood pressure because he's on a NACE inhibitor. But also when he comes to the GP, he says he's been feeling just a bit under the weather for the last couple of days. Nothing specific maybe a wee bit of fluid around his ankles. And in the department, he isn't passing much urine. It's not been measured, but he's not passed urine in the last six hours. When you go into the history a little bit more, it turns out he's on generally very little other medications. He's felt that his appetite's been a bit off for the last few days. He says he's had maybe one episode of diarrhea, but not significant frequency or volume. He's not eaten anything unusual. There's no concerns about infection when you ask focus questions about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does give a history of some nocturia three or four times at night, possibly some flow disturbance when he's passing urine and intermittently has some dribbling symptoms. Mm-hmm. This has been going on for the last four years. But the one thing that stands out from his history is that he has a known abdominal aortic aneurysm and that's been going on surveillance for the last 10 years. And it's been stable at around about six centimeters. The nursing staff kindly dipped his urine and it was clear. And his blood pressure, when you see his charts, is sitting at 200 over 100. Heart rate's about 90. His SATs are 98% on air, no fever. His respirate's sitting at 18. But he's obviously got this elevated creatinine. 
and he's moved to the health board, so there's no previous creatinine to go on. He's on lisinopril, 10 milligrams for his hypertension, and that's not changed. He's not taken any new medicines, he's not taken any NSAIDs, and he's not had any other over-the-counter medicines. But when they did a bladder scan in the department when you asked before you saw him while you were seeing the other patient, there were only 10 mils in his bladder. His creatinine, as I said, has only been checked once, but with a potassium of six and his bicarbonate was checked was sitting at 18. Hemoglobin is 105 and his MCV is 85. Inflammatory markers are normal, CRP is one, and his calcium is 2.02 with a phosphate of 1.54. So that's quite a lot of information there. Okay, so I want to summarize it back in a way. Sometimes that's quite useful to distill this type of case back. Here we have a man in his 70s with a known AAA. That's his main comorbidity, if you like. He's got arterial disease and he's suddenly presented with acute oligoanuric, well, you could really say anuric uh, renal failure with a pre-existing prostate type history, let's say a lower urinary tract obstructive type history. But most importantly, the scan shows no significant urine retention. So this is a case where there should be warning signs and bells ringing because he's already got a potassium of 6.0. He's got a good blood pressure and we'll come back to that in a minute, but he's not hypotensive. He's not, he doesn't have a significant hypovolemia or volume loss. And the urine dipstick showing that there's no blood or protein immediately tells me this is not an acute glomerulonephritis, for instance. His bladder scan rules out obstruction. It's not a, a post-renal problem. Indeed, his normal blood pressure or even high blood pressure tells you an absence of a history. This isn't even pre-renal in the the classic volume depletion pre-renal sense of the word. So this story has got all of the alarms ringing that something vascular has happened to his kidneys. And either he's had one small kidney connected with his AAA for many years, and he's now occluded the renal artery to the good kidney. That would be my number one diagnosis in this sort of case. Or he's had a retroperitoneal hemorrhage with not much pain and it's been contained and he's got some form of bilateral arterial damage. That's much less likely. So one of the things is he's going to very quickly need dialysis. So he's going to either need an intensive care unit that can provide dialysis because with that oligoanuria, with anuria of this degree, he's going to become increasingly hyperkalemic. So that's one thing to consider. Second thing is to consider imaging of the renal arterial supply. So I mean, if it's available, a Doppler of both kidneys, if it can be done, if the patient's thin enough and it's suitable and the radiologists are there. But most people would go at this stage in this sort of patient to a CT just to exclude a significant arterial event. This will, of course, involve giving them intravenous contrast to look at renal perfusion. But again, it's important to say that, you know, this is a life-threatening illness and the role of contrast as a cofactor in acute kidney injury is almost always exaggerated. And certainly for venous contrast in a CT scan, I would always say the patient's life and organ safety, meaning stopping a life-threatening event, be it a myocardial, a stroke or a kidney infarction in this case outweighs the minor risk connected with creatinine impact on tubules. And indeed that's, you know, with a normal blood pressure and volume status, I'd be less worried about the impact of contrast. So this is an arterial event. He's probably got bilateral renal artery stenosis and he's occluded the artery to a single good kidney. So you've seen him and the night team at Transpires have already requested a renal ultrasound scan, which happens essentially immediately after you've seen him. And so he gets whisked away, the porters are taken away and they they interrupt you mid-examination. And the key things in the clinical exam are that his JVP's elevated up to about his earlobe. 
His chest is clear. He's got a wee bit of edema in his ankles. No murmurs. Abdomen's nice and soft. And there's no tenderness anywhere. There's no evidence of any rash anywhere. Just in terms of, is there anything else systemic? And so he comes back and the report's actually showing that he's got a severe bilateral hydronephrosis. Okay, so yes, I should have put this in as my third diagnosis, but uh, this is a well-recognized complication of triple A's and that you get retroperitoneal expansion of the aneurysm with inflammation, and this can involve the ureters and you can get bilateral obstruction. Seen less often these days, to be honest, in the era of preemptive aortic aneurysm stenting. So we don't see it as much as we used to, but yes, people can get lost to follow up. And this man will need stented from above by an interventional radiologist in terms of decompressing his obstructive renal tract. The fact that you've mentioned his JVP is raised is important and he is at risk of fluid overload. He will need his blood pressure managed because that will actually contribute to some of the, if you like, hypertension-related acute cardiac decompensation, which can happen and maybe affect his cardiac function as well. But the main thing here to work on is his obstructed kidneys. He will have visible hydronephrosis and they're relatively easy to stent such patients. The debate here is whether such patients then go to urology or whether they go to renal because he's got such advanced disease. Usually a HDU is probably the best place with both services involved. That would be my preference if it was me or somebody belonging to me because, you know, there's lots of other issues that can happen with this, both in terms of complications for the aneurysm and the stenting. And of course, he's got advanced AKI. So that's really important just to know about where this patient should be managed. It sounds like a critical care environment is what you're suggesting. Ideally, yeah. So he's transferred to the surgical HDU and he's accepted by the urologists and they do a CTKUB just to get a bit of information. And that shows that there is this inflammatory tissue growth surrounding the AAA. And there's a query about a retroperitoneal fibrosis diagnosis. But nonetheless, he goes and has his bilateral ureteric stents. And so then you see him again because you're asked by the foundation, your doctor, to give advice on how to manage his fluids. And the key thing that they're saying is that he's just passing lots of urine now. And he's passing about 300, 400 mils of urine an hour. And they just don't know what to do. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Fogarty? Okay. So this is very common after an obstructive uropathy is decompressed with frostomies. And it, what is happening here at the kidney level is the tubules have been obstructed for some time and there's high pressure changes on the tubules whereby they cannot reabsorb salt and water the way our tubules normally do. They will regain that ability to do that. But for at least the first 48, 72 hours, you've got to keep up with this fluid loss. And many people will suggest, well, you certainly go with output maybe minus in a 300 to 400 mils per minute. And given the fact that he's got to raise JVP, you can go with output minus 50 or 100 mils per hour. That will, if you like, allow him to slowly dry out in terms of the volume status, but not get so dry that his biochemistry is exacerbated or made worse. And, you know, in general, the main thing is not to overtreat with lots of additional fluid, but you still have to keep up with some of that loss because you can very quickly, within 10 hours, he's three liters out plus three to four liters out. And if he hasn't got enough, if he hasn't been given enough fluid, he will very quickly turn around the other way and become a pre-renal AKI case. So that's the management we would generally go with is input equals to the output minus, say, 50 mils or 100 mils per hour, depending on his volume status, his chest x-ray and progress over the first day. That's great. So you advise that to the team and 
Over the next day, this gentleman's kraken falls and continues to fall halving almost every day and his potassium doesn't require any treatment. And the rheumatology team are asked to see him to follow him up on this possible diagnosis of retroperitoneal fibrosis. So what are your thoughts on that in general? Is that something that you would be off to? So, well, we do see retroperitoneal fibrosis and there's broadly, well, two broad etiologies. One is a mass, an inflammatory or cancerous mass, lymphadenopathy classically. So there's an obstruction from out with in terms of that. The rheumatology involvement is interesting. That really comes into the second group, which is also an inflammatory mass that's causing retroperitoneal fibrosis, but it's specifically an autoimmune condition called IgG4 disease. And that's where you get diffuse lymphadenopathy associated with the retroperitoneal chain. And you can get retroperitoneal masses tends to present in younger patients than a 70-year-old male with an aneurysm. When I hear aneurysm, I think this is just a classic arterial inflammatory mass rather than a second etiology, you know, in addition to the atherosclerotic AAA. So I'm not sure we would ask for rheumatology input there. We would certainly involve the vascular surgeons with respect to stenting and also urology for the nephrostomies. But once he's decompressed and starts passing urine, probably we ourselves in vascular would follow this patient as much as any rheumatologist would in our centre. Great. So we've covered quite a lot and we've touched on pre-renal and post-renal causes of AKI. And I guess we've not touched on the intrinsic causes so much. And I was just wanting to get your thoughts on what to look for or what kind of alarm bells would you'd be aware of when you're seeing someone who's not fitting the pre-renal or the post-renal AKI. They've got some blood and protein in their urine dip and nausea. That's the key thing, Jonathan, just what you said. The major investigative test is blood and protein in the urine. And I don't really mean a trace of either. We're talking about minimum two pluses of both. And when you see two pluses of protein, two pluses of blood, do think intrinsic glomerular disease specifically. And if the patient then has got a slightly longer prodrome with general fatigue, tiredness, weight loss, night sweats, skin rashes, red eyes, sore joints, that's when you're thinking about an anchor-associated vasculitis, for instance. If it's a more sudden onset illness, it's more in fitting with what's called anti-GBM disease, which is a single hit disease. It comes on very quickly usually. But if there's prodromal general symptoms, rheumatological chest, hemoptysis, nasal symptoms, this could be an anchor-associated vasculitis and sending an anchor profile. And of course, looking at old-fashioned things, but they were extremely good at, at helping work these patients out. ESR will always be raised. CRP will almost always be raised in those patients. That's the first big group to think of in that blood and protein. The other group to consider with the AKI and intrinsic group sometimes just have a, a small amount of protein, but they may have hypercalcemia, they may have bony aches and pains. And this is the myeloma patient that has a tubular interstitial disease from acute myeloma and usually our acute rise in, in free light chains. So again, sending off free light chains, Bentz-Jones proteinuria, and looking at the other markers of myeloma are the keys to that one. And I suppose as a third group to think of with intrinsic diseases, have they started a recent drug that is well recognized to cause acute allergic interstitial nephritis? And this is acute type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. So it's the same group of drugs that give you skin rashes, often antibiotics, often things like even allopurinol, some of the older fashioned antibiotics particularly commonly caused it, but any antibiotic can cause it. And now the biggest group that causes acute interstitial, allergic interstitial nephritis is proton pump inhibitors. So PPI drugs, imiprazole particularly, but all of the PPIs cause that. And that's probably the single biggest group followed by antibiotics, followed by 
by non-steroidals uh, as a group that cause an interstitial reaction. And that's to distinguish non-steroidals from interfering with blood flow in the vulnerable arterial path, where NSAIDs are more akin to ACE inhibitors A or Bs and interfere with the renal perfusion, but the actual rash and acute AKI, where the creatinine doubles every day or two, think interstitial nephritis. And of course, eosinophilia in the bloodstream is a good marker for that. And they're the big groups to think of. Young women, Asian patients, don't forget about IgA nephropathy and lupus, the two big areas to think of. So you may want to send anti-nuclear antibodies, immunoglobulins, look for raised serum IgA. And if you see low platelets, the last big group to think of is hemolytic uremic syndrome. Don't have time to go into that. You can all read about it, but it's basically either related to diarrheal infection illness like E. coli, or it's connected with some of the rare atypical HUS syndromes. But the key marker there is when you see low platelets with an AKI as well. Yeah, I think one of the things I remember about the HUS syndrome is, is always ask for the blood film Yes, for the yeah. schistocytes. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yes. So schistocytes raised uh, LDH, falling hemoglobin is important. That often goes along with platelets disproportionately to feel like the illness. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, blood film for schistocytes and half the patients will have a history of a diarrheal illness. And the stool sample can often grow the specific E. coli 0157 serotype, which is associated with this. It's self-limiting, usually gets with just uh, fluids and conservative management. The atypical HUS needs a lot more investigation. It's quite specialized. And the nephrologists in your centers will be very interested to see those as a relatively rare and important F because they've got long-term renal outcome problems. That is a great overview of the intrinsic diseases that can affect the kidney. And I guess which excite you would be most as a nephrologist. We've covered so much, Dr. Fogarty, and I'd just like to wrap things up now. Thank you so much for your time. But just before we finish, what were your main take-home messages that you think we can take from this discussion for our listeners today? And what were your main pearls of wisdom and advice for the general internal medicine training? Yes. Okay. A couple of things I haven't specifically said, but I will throw them in now, is that we mentioned AKI and pre-renal effects. And very often we blame the drugs, ACE inhibitors and ARB drugs. But it's very important to recognize we prescribe these drugs all the time to patients with proteinuric CKD. And we're doing that to protect the kidneys. And there's fantastic meta-analysis level data showing that those drugs and now SGLT2 inhibitors protect kidneys. So we need to get away from calling these drugs nephrotoxic. I prefer to use the term that they're pressure toxic in certain circumstances, especially patients at risk of low blood pressure, has low blood pressure. Likewise, the diuretics, I use them all the time. They're not nephrotoxic. They might be toxic to your volume if you don't have enough volume. So in the same way, we don't give insulin to someone who's hypoglycemic, let, and we don't call insulin a metabolic toxin as such. We just know not to prescribe it when the sugar's low. We shouldn't just call these excellent drugs of protecting kidneys in chronic situations, nephrotoxic, when really the issue is the patient has an at-risk, low blood pressure, low circulating volume. So be very careful, everybody, about recognizing that and recommending restarting the ACE inhibitors and ARB agents and SGLT2 inhibitors. If the patient has a clear-cut indication, which is proteinuric CKD, heart failure, or if they've been on it for, for hypertension management, 
because many of these patients then go home, they get over their AKI, and then they come back in with a hypertensive crisis or nephrotic syndrome gets worse or their heart failure gets worse. So remember, kidneys are vascular organs. Think about them as capillaries and perfusion-related AKI rather than a specific drug that you always stop or start. That's one of the things that we were trying to increasingly get across. That's great stuff. And certainly it's really important that those sick day rules, as you were saying, about when these medicines should be stopped. And then the key thing is restarting them, just as you said. Yeah. Well, I think I've learned a lot today and it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And just as a sort of final thank you, I'd like to thank you for your time, Dr. Fogarty. Thanks very much, Jonathan. I'm very happy to have people follow up with me. I'm very active on Twitter. I encourage people to get in touch and we'll keep the conversation going long-term on that front. Thank you so much, Dr. Fogarty. If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then please go on to our website at events.rcpe.ac.uk to see what online symposia and evening medical updates you might be interested in. There are upcoming episodes that will be linked to the renal evening medical update on the 27th of September 2022 and the Edinburgh International Course in Medicine of the Older Adult on the 29th of September 2022. All the cases that were discussed in this episode were not real and were created for the pure purpose of providing educational content for you, our listeners. Thank you.